We're, uh, I have interrupted our series in the book of Matthew to do what's turned out to be three weeks. We're in the second week of just talking about having some vision for the church. And in this weird time, our elders met for uh, almost a whole weekend a few weeks ago. And this is kind of the result of a lot of that discussion. And um, I think that this is one of the most significant, if not the most significant moment in evangelical church history, at least since you and I have been alive. The things that are changing right now are enormous and they're fast. And I think we all feel it. Um, and so that's kind of what's prompted this. And I just want to say to you, like, this is a moment for you to lean into God and listen to what he's telling you. This is not business as usual. And this is not wait for COVID to go away so we can go back to what it was before. This is a fundamental shift in how we think about church. But at the same time, there is nothing new. I, I am not going to say anything new to you. This is like, I said last week, this is like premarital counseling where you give a new couple advice about what it's going to be like to be married. And they're like, oh, that's great. You know, it sounds really interesting. That's great. Sounds like good advice. But it sort of means nothing to you because you're not married yet. And then like a year into your marriage, you're like, oh, wait a second. What was that book he told me to read? What was that? He said something. It was like, it was about this. He said this would happen, you know, and there's this kind of moment where suddenly it had, you have a hook to hang it on. And a lot of these kind of what is church things are like that, okay? Um, so don't expect some, it's not like I found another Bible, right, that tells you something you didn't know. It's just that suddenly some of this stuff connects. And so that's what we're doing. So I want to look, last week we talked about um, how the, the, Holy, the church is a temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We together are the temple and he has filled us and that's an amazing thing and all the kind of ramifications of that. Um, we are a gathering. We gather that authority we have as a church is connected to our gathering and our agreement together. And we looked at that last week. So if you missed that, go catch up. Um, I thought it was pretty good. It was all right. All right. Um, and this morning, I want to talk about the body of Christ. And I want to talk about what we do when we, when we gather, because that has some pretty practical implications for how we be the church together going forward. Okay. Um, so last week when talking about the church as a temple, I mentioned that every Christian is a priest. Isn't that a fun idea? Every one of you. You're like, well, I'm not really, I haven't been to seminary. I, you know, I, I feel like I can barely get out of bed in the morning. How can I, you are, God calls you a priest. You are a royal priest of all things. You're not just any priest. You're a royal priest and we together are a royal priesthood. That's an amazing idea. Paul picks up this idea in 1 Corinthians 12, and here's what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, so you could say instead of members, that word confuses you. Think of those just body parts, okay? So just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, where would be the sense of hearing? That's a funny picture. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That is the church. That's a wonderful metaphor. This is mirrored again in Romans 12, 3 through 8. You can read that too on your own. But when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit connects you to the body as an essential body part. There is not an appendix in the body of Christ. You are all essential. Every last one of you. And every, so here's something, just I made a list of things we can get out of that section. One, every body part has a unique function. Some are public, some are not. But they're all equally essential. And each body part is essential to the function of the entire body. In fact, he says that even if you think you're disconnected and you're not a part of the body, you're wrong. You don't decide if you're connected or not connected, if you're a part of the body or not, or if you're essential or not. Who are you? Foot? To say, I feel really disconnected right now. You might feel disconnected, but you are not disconnected. It's the amazing thing about Christianity. It never says, you do this so that you are this. It says, you know, it doesn't say, do things to be connected so that you will be connected. It says, no, you are connected, so act like it right? You are a part of the body, so act like it. It doesn't say fill out a membership form so you can be connected. It doesn't even say go to a small group so you can be connected. You are, therefore, act like it. That's how everything in God works. He declares you to be something, and he says, now act like it. He never says, I need you to try harder to be a good member of the body of Christ. He just says you are. That's why I always say the church is not divided because God says we're unified. Yeah, but what about all the divisions? God says we're not. So we just need that. We're just not acting like it. It's a very, one's faith and one's not, right? I got off my list. Sorry, I started preaching. All right. Third, the arrangement of the body parts is determined by God. You don't get to say, God, I don't like the place you put me. I really wanted, I don't like being in the ear. I'd prefer to be and it's always different, right? The people who are up front don't want to be up front. And the people who are not up front want to be up front. The people who are obscure don't want to be obscure. And the people who aren't, who are public, don't want to be public. We're always kind of going, ah, grousing about our place. And God says, you don't get to choose. No body part is more important than another. In fact, I would say the more authority you have in the church, the less important you are. 
That means I'm the least important person in this room. The guy with the most authority or the girl with the most authority is the least important. You have the least rights. It doesn't mean you have the least fun. <laughs> it just means you have the least rights. You climb the ladder down in the kingdom of God, right? That's how this works. And nobody's more important or less important than the other. And every body part needs every other body part. I think this is a huge problem. A lot of the times the reason why we unplug or disconnect from the church is because we think our presence doesn't have an impact. It doesn't matter if I show up or not. And so we just don't. What's the big deal? No one's going to miss me. I'm not in charge of anything. I'm not contributing anything. Therefore, I'm just going to not go. I'm not going to be there because it doesn't matter. There's no impact. As soon as you realize that your presence is necessary, suddenly your commitment goes to the roof, doesn't it? Just think about if you and just another friend, and it's just you and one other person, and you saying, I can't meet with you, means they're not going to meet at all. Suddenly, your commitment to that thing goes up, doesn't it? But when you feel like, yeah, what impact will it have? Your commitment goes down. Every body part needs every other body part. If I cut, I cut my finger yesterday right here, it's gross, I'm sorry, there you go, in HD, <laughs> right there. Gross you out. All right, I cut my finger. My it affected my whole body. When I cut, I went, ah! Every body part went like this when I cut my finger. It wasn't like just the tip of my finger was like, ow! And the rest of me is like, whatever, and I got blood dripping down. I'm just going about my business, right? It affected my whole body. And that's every body part is connected to the rest, and it's essential. And when one hurts, Paul says, the whole body hurts. And when one's missing, the whole body is hurting. And no body part can function if separated from the body. I mean, I think that's obvious. But think about that in terms of church life. If I cut my finger off and I set it here on the podium, I know this is getting gross and I'm sorry. I'm not really sorry. I'm, I'm lying to you. Uh, and I set it here. What's going to happen to it? Do we need to ask Dr. Scott what's going to happen? No, we all know what's going to happen. That finger is going to cease to function as a finger, right? And this is the way the body, if you think you can function as a Christian, cut off from the body of Christ, you are deceiving yourself and you are shriveling up as we speak. You may not know it. It may be a slow decay, but you are. All right. How literal is it? I don't, I, you know, I think this is a metaphor, but I think Paul takes it very literally. Because <laughs> he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 15, he says, when he's talking about, we got kids here, so you can read it. But do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take my members of Christ and make them members of someone who has a disreputable profession? <laughs> a woman of the night, all right? And it's part, the, part of the reason why we don't do that is because it's like you are dragging the body of Christ with you into that person. That's really interesting, isn't it? So this is not just like a philosophy or a metaphor in this disconnected way. Paul takes this very literally, very seriously. We are physically, in some mysterious way, connected with Christ. We are his body. The church is 
Christ incarnated on the earth. The physical presence of Christ. That's, that kind of makes me feel like this is a big deal. <laughs> like the church is a big deal. Your unity with Christ is not just spiritual. It is embodied in the church. So this further highlights the importance of gathering physically together. We're not Gnostics, right, who say that the physical world is all evil and doesn't matter. All that matters is that we are spiritually connected, man. We're just connected, man. Now, there's a physical presence that's required. It isn't possible, I think, to exaggerate the importance of the church. I think, I think no matter how much I feel like I'm exaggerating it when I preach about it, it's never quite as important as it really is. The church is not a disembodied spiritual entity that exists separately from the physical world. When just one of us isn't connected and doing their gift, whatever that gift is, because the context here in 1 Corinthians 12 is the spiritual gifts. When you're not doing your gift, so it's not just about sitting together and eating hot dogs and having a good time. When you're not using your gift, you are depriving the rest of the body of the function. It's like a finger that won't be a finger. It's connected, but it won't move. My brother broke his finger once years ago and didn't get it fixed. And I won't tell you which one. He'd be mad at me if I said, but he broke and he didn't get it looked at. And now it's just the, it's fused. It's his pinky finger. It's just fused together as like one sort of stick. Like this. And I pick on him about it all the time. <laughs> but it's a finger that doesn't work right. That's you not using your gifts. You're connected, but you're not functioning as God's asked you to function. And you being connected to the body isn't about you feeling connected, but about you supplying the body what it needs. That's a very different mentality. Just think about, like, if you're in a small group, for example, and you're driving to your small group in the evening, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking, I hope it's good tonight? I hope it ministers to me tonight. I hope it's a good, and I hope the snacks are good. I hope, you know, Jamie isn't boring or whatever. Or are you saying, God, what do you want me to contribute? What am I bringing? How can I be the finger? How can I be the hand that you made me to be? How can I be the thing that you've called me to be in this context? And if it's not good, if the meeting is lame, you feel responsible for it. You never say, you know, you should do this or that. Please don't ever come to me and say, you know, pastor, what you guys should do is... I'm happy if you say what we should do. Now, that's different, right? It's the same thing with everything you're involved in with your connection with the church. It's not about just getting what you need to feel connected, but it's about you supplying the body with what it needs. All right. So let's talk about Lord's Day worship, Sunday morning. Quick history lesson. I promise I won't be boring. Well, I can't promise, but I'll try, all right? So going back long, long time ago to the ancient Near East, weekly Jewish worship happened on Saturday, right? That was the Sabbath. It was the last day of the week. Saturday was the last day of the week. And in the synagogue, as part of their Sabbath, that's what they did. They would gather together and they'd worship together. This goes all the way back to the institution of the Sabbath in Exodus 20. 
because God rested in creation, right? He said, rest on the Sabbath. I want you to rest. And part of the, the way they, they celebrated their rest in God was to get together and worship together in the synagogue. The resurrection then happened on Sunday, the next day, right? And so the whole reason we worship on Sunday was pretty soon in early church history, they said, we, we're, we, we, want, we still want to go to the synagogue on Saturday, but on Sunday... We had this whole Jesus thing that we can't really do in the synagogue. So they started having worship on Sunday where they primarily take communion together. They do the Lord's Supper together and they worship together and they do the Jesus stuff. So you had this rhythm. The Saturday synagogue and the Sunday worship. And that tradition has continued very early in church history. Um, this became really about the resurrection. It's really interesting if you start reading about this stuff, you, they found caves where after persecution started, they would have to meet on Sundays in caves and you can find they'd set up little areas for the Christians where they could take communion together and you had an area for the non-Christians because they weren't allowed to take communion and you can, it's all still there. It's amazing. They were meeting in homes. They were sharing fellowship and meals together, as well as gathering in larger numbers in open meeting spaces. You see that in Acts 5.12. This continued, all right? So you had this kind of not just Saturday synagogue, not just Sunday resurrection celebration, but then all through the week you had people gathering in homes, gathering in public in numbers. Miracles were happening. They were worshiping together. They were teaching the word together, doing all sorts of stuff all the way through the week. And then persecution started. And what that did is it forced them out of the synagogue first. You can actually see Paul going, when he'd go to a new city, he'd go to the synagogue first and he'd harass them and try to debate them about Jesus as the Messiah. They'd get mad at him and kick him out. Eventually, they just weren't allowed to go anymore. And then the public worship, because the persecution got more intense and they weren't able to even worship in public, and that forced them into places like homes and caves even. Can you imagine going to church in a cave? Dark, damp, echoey cave just so you can be with other Christians? Just so you can sing together and hear the word read together and take communion together? So all throughout church history, with all of its schisms and divisions, the tradition of the Lord's Day worship has been mostly upheld as a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, which is what we're doing here. I think that's a cool thing. That despite the fact that we disagree on a whole bunch of stuff, we're still celebrating the resurrection every Sunday. The problem is, that's become difficult to do. But this is not the first time this has happened to the church, right? So the question really is, how do we celebrate the Lord's Day as, that's a whole other issue, um, what format we do it in. So basically what we do here is we gather to worship and we gather to build each other up spiritually. That's what we're doing. Worship together as a people, right? As congregationally as we can, as together as we can. So we start asking questions like, what does it mean to pray together? What does it mean to worship and sing together? That's why we do those things. is because we're trying to do things together and build each other up. So I've talked about this before. The four means of grace I think are important because it becomes, I think, a template for ministry. Not just for me, 
and the elders in this church, but for you. So we have four main ways people receive from God and grow in their faith. I've tried to think of more, but I haven't. This is a pretty good list going way back in church history, right? Word, prayer, fellowship, and sacrament. Sacrament would be baptism and communion, right? So just think about this in terms of ministry and what you can do to minister to other people and what other people can do to minister to you. Get in the Word. That one's obvious. You open your Bible, whether you're having it taught to you or you're teaching it to someone else, it's a guarantee that spiritual life is being transferred, no matter what. Even if it's the worst time in the Word you've ever had. Even if you fell asleep after three words in, and then you woke up and couldn't remember where you fell asleep, and you just then you had to rush to work. Those three words, something, a transaction happened. It's a guarantee. Prayer. Prayer works. Whether you're praying for yourself, just talking to God, or someone's praying for you, or you're praying for someone else, spiritual life flows. The grace of God flows. Fellowship. We talked about this last week. I don't need to belabor that point. Being in each other's presence and just being the presence of Christ to each other. It's a guarantee. Even if you're not praying for each other, just being together, spiritual life flows between you. And then lastly, sacrament. When we take the Lord's Supper together and take communion, it's out of obedience to Christ. Even if you're like, you know, I'm bored or distracted or whatever it is, spiritual life flows. Same thing with baptism. So singing, for example, can bring all of those elements together in one activity, which is fun. We sing the truths of the word together, all together. It's a fun thing. It's part of why it's great. So this is ministry, all right? I don't want to be too simple, but I think we need to be simple. If you want to know, what, what do I do? How do I minister to people? Do one of those four things or do them all at the same time, right? And you can do those four things anywhere. And any Christian can do them. It's not the job of the professional to do those four things and no one else. It is all of us. Like, you're quite, like how can I teach the word? If like, I don't understand the word, figure it out. I'll help you. You got a room full of people that can help you. But it's time for you to sort that question out so that you can not only feed yourself, but feed other people. And become a person of prayer where you're not afraid to pray for someone else. Not just pray for yourself. Become dedicated to fellowship. In-person, physical presence fellowship. Why not take communion together? Why not invite some people over? Say, hey, I haven't seen you in a year. You come and you can, you can, you can stand there in a hazmat suit in my living room if you want. And we'll, we'll pass, you know, a piece of bread through some kind of wall, a plexiglass wall to you, and you can, we can take communion together. Can we, just do, can we just do that? You know you're allowed to do that? And if you're like, I don't know how to serve communion, like, first of all, you've been in communion probably a hundred times. Just do that thing. But I, I will give you a document. In fact, I'm going to send this out tonight to the whole church. And it's, it's titled something else, but I'll call it How to Do Communion, all right? And it has verses you can read. And it has what to say, what to do, so you don't have to even think for yourself. All right? Like, why not? Like, all four of those things you can do anytime you choose to do them. All four of them. 
All right, let's talk about group dynamics because this, I think, connects very much with what I'm saying and what's happening in the church. If you look through the New Testament, including the way Jesus did ministry, you see him working in different size groups, right? He had the crowds. You had the 12. Well, you had another number, like in the hundreds. They were not sure. That was a weirdly undefined group, like maybe 100, 120 people that were more dedicated than the 5,000 people. They kind of followed him around. Then he had his 12, and he had his three that were sort of more intensely discipled than the others, right? He had these different groups that he would minister to. And social scientists, of course, are always late to the party, but they've studied these group dynamics for years and confirmed what Jesus seems to have been doing all along. I love that. When science kind of goes, oh, this is the thing. And you go, yeah, we knew that for like 2,000 years, but that's cool. Congratulations on catching up, right? Different group sizes have different strengths and weaknesses, and I've got a handy-dandy chart that I made. I'm proud of it. It's, it's like a spreadsheet, but not, right? Here's the four groups. This will seem very intuitive to you, but when we start talking about current circumstances, it'll actually become important. So you have the 50-plus people, which I would call the auditorium size, then the 15 to 30 classroom size, just imagine a classroom and how many people and how that works. Five to 12 people, living room, and then two to three coffee table, right? Sitting around a coffee table, two or three people. The dynamics of each are very different, okay? So in a 50 plus, you have one leader at a time, even if it's multiple people. Even if right now I were to pause and say, Alan's going to finish this sermon, and I'd step down, Alan would come up, you still got one person leading, right? And in a coffee table, everybody's leading. And even what it means to lead is different, right? How you even would define what a leader is in that situation versus in a 50-plus is different. And there's a spectrum in between. We all know this intuitively because we've been in all these different groups and we know how they work. In a 50-plus, you have the strength of this sense of awe and spectacle, which I think is part of what we all miss from a year ago is everybody being together and there's this uplifting sense. You don't even have to be in a good mood. You walk in and you get lifted, right? Because you see, you hear all these other people worshiping God and there's a sense of awe and spectacle being a part of something bigger than yourself. That's a wonderful feeling. But but it's hard to have any intimacy, right? You don't get to talk to people very much. You don't get to know anybody, but you have this sense of awe. That's a good thing. At the coffee table, you lose the awe and spectacle, but you get intimacy, right? In the 50 plus, you can maximize one person's gift by letting them broadcast. I'm talking to many people at one time. That's a strength. At a coffee table, you can have conversation. But we've all also been to in conversations that were not so good. We've all been in the terrible Bible study before. And you just wish somebody knew the Bible better in the Bible study, right? I'm I'm sure that's never happened at this church. But you know what I mean, right? There's strengths and weaknesses to all of them. In 50 plus, you can be anonymous. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think eventually it's a bad thing. But there's a lot of people who... The idea of coming to your house as a stranger and sitting in your living room with a room full of strangers that are just a few feet away for an undisclosed amount of time, that sounds like a nightmare. It doesn't sound like something that's easy. There are some people that sounds great. 
because they're extroverts and they're not afraid of, they don't have any social anxiety whatsoever, right? But some people want to be able to come in and be anonymous first and work their way in. That's not wrong. So on the one hand, you've got anonymous and then at the coffee table you have, you're known, you're known personally. Each has their own set of rules based on unspoken social contract. You ever been in a meeting like 50 plus people? And the pastors happened to me when I was, I don't know who I was telling this story this week, but I was about 13 and I visited another church with a friend of mine in high school or middle school it would have been. And it was a really large church, at least for me. I was used to like a 50 person church and it was like probably 400. And the, they were doing the guest welcome thing. And the pastor goes, uh, who, who's visiting for the first time today? And I'm like, I'm not standing up. I grew up in church. I know what's about to happen. But everybody's looking at me like, go ahead, stand up. So I stand up. And all of a sudden, the pastor now points at me and starts talking to me in front of everyone. So where are you from? Tell us a little bit about yourself, right? And I'm dying inside. Everybody in the room suddenly looking at me. Now, what was wrong with that? He broke the rules. He's acting like we were in a living room. Because in a living room, that would be normal. You would expect that. But in a 50 plus, like those are not the rules. The social rules are I should be anonymous, right? And we know these rules. Well, most of us, except for that guy, did not know the rules. We know the rules. We know why that's nerve wracking. So here's, here's why this matters, right? In the New Testament, you see all of these groups attended to in ministry by the church. And in modern Christianity, we have pushed everything up to the 50 plus. And we've weighted everything up there. And what we're experiencing now, whenever persecution comes or hardship comes, what happens? There's a lot of downward pressure that pushes and makes the, the top level of my chart less and less possible. And it pushes those four things, word, prayer, sacrament, fellowship, and it pushes them down into those smaller groups. And that's what we're seeing happen right now. This is church history just all over again. Persecution and hardship creates downward pressure on the chart. And for American Christians, this is a good thing. I don't think this is a bad thing. I know there's some loss. There's this feeling of like, I, I want that feeling of everyone being together again. And I'm not saying that's never going to happen again. I'm just saying that's not what God is doing with us right now. Not just Living Hope Church, but with the church in America. It's not what he's doing. He is pushing us, and I think he's making us more healthy. Last week I gave you the metaphor of a chess player. I don't play chess. This could be completely wrong, but it's a good metaphor, all right? Which is when chess players, some chess players want to learn to play really well, they take their strongest piece off the board, which is the queen. And they, so that they're forced to learn all the other pieces better. And then when they add the queen back in, they're really good, right? And we've, the queen has been our 50-plus meeting for a long time. And she's off the board. She's broken. She can't do for us now what she used to do. I'm not mourning that. I was for a little while, but not anymore. I'm excited. Because I think this is actually making us more healthy. And there's a moment where it feels unhealthy, right? It feels like you've stalled out and the plane's just about to go, we've lost the engines. 
It's just that the engine was never this meeting. The engine is the Holy Spirit. The engine is the church. And when you go back and look at what the church actually is, you realize we have not been slowed down one bit. What's happening is you are being forced to do the four things instead of just me and a few other people in one meeting each week. So what are we going to do about it? We're almost out of time. One, obviously, small groups. That's something we've been doing. But it's more important now. It just is. And if your habit has not been to do small groups, but instead to do Sunday and kind of see that as a Sunday's enough thing, I'm just telling you Sunday's not going to be enough anymore. It's just not. And I don't think that's bad news. It might feel like it to you, <laughs> but I don't think it is. I don't think you're going to be able to survive in the world to come without doing that. And I don't think I'm being dramatic. I just think that's the way it is. Also, our elder team is dividing up the church and taking personal responsibility for shepherding specific people. So you might be getting phone calls or text messages or carrier pigeons to your door or whatever it is. Um, just going, hey, how you doing? And you, if you're like, why is this guy, why is he calling me all the time all of a sudden? Like, is there something wrong with me? Do I, do I smell bad? Like, is he trying to tell me something? No, we're just trying to be better shepherds and more organized. Thirdly, we want to start um, something a little bit new. I don't think it's that new. Like I said, none of this is really new. Because on Sunday right now, we've been dividing up group A, group B, trying to make room for each other and for guests to be able to come. So that means every other week, you, it's just you in your empty living room or maybe in your bed. I don't know how you do it. Um, I don't want to know, right? But it's just you in your empty house in your empty place, maybe you and your family. But what if, instead of that, what if you invited other people over to your house to worship with you? To fill up your living room, and you can define what you think filling up means, right? And you worship together. So now you've, you have physical presence. Maybe not this many people. <laughs> I mean... I guess we could cram all of you into my living room, but I'm not even comfortable with that, all right? But you have physical presence, and all of a sudden, worship means something different. Even just thinking about that is exciting to me. Have a few people over Sunday morning. They come out of your house about 10, because the live stream starts at 10.30. You can hang out. You can even do earlier than that and have some, some bacon and eggs. That sounds pretty good to me. I may not even come here anymore. <laughs> Have some bacon and eggs and toast. I could make waffles. Have, a, have some worship. Pray together. Listen to the sermon. Pray for each other. Hang out. It might turn into a whole day thing. Who knows what will happen? Put the kids down for a nap in somebody else's bedroom. If you've never done that, you haven't lived. <laughs> I mean, you just keep a, pack, keep a pack and play in your trunk at all times. So that you can nap your kid at any place. We've done that before. We used to do that with my brother when they lived in our town. Go to their house and put the kids to bed and pack and play, stashed in closets and stuff all over the house so we could just hang out longer. They'll live. They will, promise. They'll be better for it. They might be fussy the next day, but it doesn't matter. It's worth it, right? Like, what if we just thought this way? 
Instead of thinking in terms of when Ben and the elders have a meeting, that's when church is happening. But when they're not having a meeting, church is not happening. And we kind of know theologically that's not true, but that's kind of how we act. What if you flipped that around and said, how has God gifted me to do those four things in my life with other people? So invite people over. I'm calling it worship at home because it's very descriptive. Worship at home. And you're like, what about COVID? That's up to you. It's your house. Don't ask me what to do. You're grown-ups. Talk to each other. Have the conversation. What are you comfortable doing? This is what I'm comfortable doing. It's my house. I make the rules anyway, but I'm willing to talk to you, right? And have the conversation. We should all be used to having that conversation by now anyway, right? I mean, we've, we were in this, what, a year now? Being able to have that conversation without people getting offended and to say, what are you comfortable with? Here's what I'm comfortable with. Here's what I'd like to do. Okay, that's cool. We can do what you want to do, right? Having that conversation. Do it however you want to do it. Discuss it as a group like grown-ups. Susan's going to send out some information on how to join in this week. Um, but I want to encourage you that you don't have to wait for that. You can always just say, because we don't have enough people to host. We have a couple of people already. Julie has already done it. And if you want tips on how to do it, she had a great time doing it with a few people at her little townhouse, what, two, week, two three weeks ago. She made snacks. I mean, you don't have to make snacks if you're not a snack maker. But... It was great. They stood there in her living room and worshiped together and listened to the sermon and hung out, and it was a wonderful thing. I want to encourage you to think about doing this, to host one. Go ahead. If you know people that are on your same, like, A-B schedule, to say, hey, you want to come over? Like, next week we're off. Like, those of you here in the room, next week you'll be at home. Like, look around. These are your, this is your group. So, hey, you want to come over, worship together, you know, just come up, just do it. And then notify Susan because she wants to be in the loop because some of you won't know enough people. If you're new, especially, you won't know enough people to be able to just do that on your own. We want you to be able to connect. So we need to know who's hosting, who's willing to host, what your capacity is. Okay. And so Susan's going to send out info, not only about how, if you want to host, here's how you can let me know, but also if you want to just join in and you're not comfortable hosting, how you can do that, all right? We'll make that as easy as possible. I shouldn't say we. Susan will make that as easy as possible, all right? I think it's interesting, part of what's happening here is the most important gifts in the church have always been the hidden ones, like hospitality. And the ones we're always kind of more impressed by are like the the preachers and the prophets and the, the people with the, the books and the ministry titles and the stage work. <laughs> We're like, oh, that guy's really gifted. Do you see how God has flipped that? But the thing we are most desperate in need for in this church is not that. What we're most desperate in need for is hospitality. Somebody willing to open their home and take that risk, and you can gauge that risk however you want to, but someone willing to take that risk to open their home and to make room for that, that's what's going to make the church fruitful in this season. 
So if you've been sitting around going, I just love having people over and making them feel comfortable and like, just, I just love that vibe. Well, you're, you're no longer on deck. You're at bat right now. If you've been sitting there going, I just need, I just don't know what my gifts are. I don't know. You got to figure that out. It's time. If you've been going, well, you know, I just struggle to just get my Bible study going. It's time to get over that. It just is. Because you got to be able to teach people. You feel that? You, I'm trying to make eye contact with everybody equally. <laughs> you, so I just broke the fourth wall to freak people out on YouTube. They're like, he's been looking around, and all of a sudden he's like, and you're like, whoa. You need to be able to not just understand the word, but teach it. Explain it to somebody. You don't have to be a genius. Just be able to open the word with somebody, not and not just receive it. I think this is important. You need to feel the weight of ministry in the church coming on your shoulders. It's what the church is like now. So this is no longer a church where you attend and receive. Kick yourself out of that church. I'm kicking you out of that church. Welcome to the church because you are the church and you are the ministers. Hospitality, I think, is important right now. So if you have that gift, I'm just calling on you. Um, wrestle with God over the safety issues and all that, and I can't answer that for you. That's between you and God, all right? Wrestle with him over that, but just, I think you need to say to God, God, if this is the gift you've given me, I'm going to use it. I'm going to find a way to do it, okay? That's my challenge to you this morning. All right. I've gone on long enough. Why don't we stand up? I'm going to pray for you. We'll wrap this up next week. Next week, we'll talk about the family of God is what the church is, and we'll talk about discipleship and what that means and how to do it, because that's a huge piece. So let's pray. God, I thank you for your church. God, that you would just, God, I just ask you to take all these high and lofty ideas about how important the body of Christ is and how each one of us is as important as the other. God, and you would bring that down into the practicalities of how we live. God, that we would boil it down for ourselves. God, that we would get clear about what it is you are pushing us to do. God, that we would get clear about what, what part of the body we are and whether or not we're contributing our gift or not. And God, if, if we're holding back our gift, God, I pray that you would provoke us this week, like right now, in this moment, God, to re-engage. God, we want to be people that are not dependent on a certain type of gathering or a certain size or in a certain way. But I pray that you would mobilize us this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. God bless you.